You're listening to the Around the Lens podcast, the home of high-quality, roundtable, visual journalism discussion about the news, topics, and gear related to our career field. Now, here's the host of our show, David J. Murphy. Hello and welcome to Around the Lens, episode 248. I'm your host, David J. Murphy. Joining this me this week is my co-host, a freelance photographer based out of New York, Mr. Bruce Byers. Bruce, it's great to have you back. How are you doing, buddy? Hey, not too bad, not too bad. Uh, looked out the window this morning, had a little bit of rain, but uh, we'll see what happens in New York when it rains. <laughs> great, great times here uh, anyways. I can tell you what happens in New York when it rains. It gets wet. Things <laughs> get wet. <laughs> I was there for uh, Hurricane Sandy, and that was a, a crazy time. I was actually down in New Jersey at the time, but I saw some photographs uh, my friend uh, C.S. Muncie took while he was there. And, ooh, man, it was crazy seeing all the subways flooded and everything. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, well, hopefully it, you it don't was, get that. No, no, no. We're, we actually need the rain. Our, our reservoirs are a little bit down, so we're doing okay. Great. Well, Bruce, uh, it's been a while since you've been on the show, uh, but glad to have you back on and doing duty as co-host for this episode. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your work, and what you've been up to since the last time you were on the show. Well, I'm a freelance photographer in New York since uh, 94. And then since 1975, wow. so I came came out of RIT in Rochester, um, that big photography school. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, lots of lots of great uh, uh, photographers that I was able to connect with there, and um, and then so I came into in, in New York and did everything from advertising to fashion, you name it, to my fine art, black and white, kind of in the uh, nine, late 90s or in going into 2000, I got heavy into documenting medical missions or document. There's a town up in Connecticut I documented for 14 years. Um, actually, by the time I had the show, some of the people I had photographed had passed away. It was the, 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 the show, the, the, the uh, thing went on for so long. Um, so, and then I went into um, Asia a lot with. Um, company a um organization called smile bangladesh for cleft cleft lip repair and literally would get off the airplane and go now what and uh that was the excitement of it because i would follow these doctors incredibly remote poor areas and we would do surgery upon surgery so i learned a tremendous amount about the world and about myself and everything else so most of my travel was more Europe and that type of thing, cruise ships and uh, different stuff like that. But then getting into documenting, which you know a lot about, and uh, it's just it it just opens up a whole nother world. I mean, into the West Bank, into China, Sri Lanka, uh, Bangladesh, India, Vietnam, into um, uh, Beirut and Jordan, doing the um, documenting the the refugees out of Syria uh, and just hearing the stories, the stories. I mean, like we were in the in Syria, they, they were coming into Jordan, into the camps. And as they crossed the border, the Syrian were picking them off with the rifles as they as they walked through the gate. I mean, just hearing stuff like that. It was uh, and and as a, and as and I went as a journalist. And I was actually fundraising for the organization that was dealing with the with the refugees. I wasn't allowed into the camp because the people were stoning Western journalists because the photographs that they were taking was telling the Syrians where they were and they would come get them. 
So, so as a, as a journalist, you had to listen all the way around and that's what I've been doing lately. So, um, in April, April 14th, to be exact, I was photographing my wife with her mask and advertising. She wanted some stuff, you know, with the pandemic was in full blast here in New York. We were losing 800 people a day. They had morgues set up behind the hospitals. Uh, just horrible. Um, I went and photographed the clapping. We Everybody claps at 7 o'clock. Exactly 7 o'clock, New York would erupt. Not at 7.01, not at 6.59, at 7 o'clock every night. You set your watch. And so I photographed, you know, ran up to the hospital, 77th and Lex, and uh, photographed. And I came back, and I'm editing this stuff, and I go, you know what? I got a printer. I printed up a bunch of pictures. The next day, I went back. And I gave the pictures to the nurses and you should have seen the expressions on their faces. You know, all there was a bunch of other photographers there taking pictures and there you could just see in their minds that, you know, OK, so I'm taking another thing. And, but but for someone to walk up to them and say, here's your here's a picture as opposed to let me take your picture. So I did that for for about 14 weeks. Um, I. My Facebook feed, uh, Bruce Byers, has a nurse's album on it of 2,500 photographs. Everything through Floyd, through uh, Gay Pride, through 9-11. We actually did one for 9-11. And about the third week in, the the union, the uh, nurses' union connected with me, and we continued the project for the next time. And, And now we're about a week away from having a... 118-page book roll off the press, uh, which they will then give 1,500 of them to their union members, which all the nurses, um, just for this. And it's it's a it's a tearjerker. Um, and uh, every day going there was just as as a journalist, you know, I'm 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 a you know, it's sort of like where's the story? How to keep the story going uh, was probably the biggest and toughest part so about in the third week all of a sudden i realized that the the um the, not that many nurses were coming out and i go well what's going on i start getting friends with the different nurses and stuff and they said it's getting better in the hospital so they're sending those extra nurses away and they're not needing as many which was fantastic but i knew the you know we were still losing 800 people a day so i set up a black background and I did portrait of them, which that took them out of this kind of crowd of people cheering and doing whatever to a very personal moment in this horrible time. And and the images ranged from real goofy to crying. And, and it was an amazing, amazing thing. And it's still going on. I still have to go back and do more photographs. Unfortunately, New York is starting to spike again. So right. I could be back out on this one. So it's, uh, that's kind of what I've been doing for the last, since we've, since we've seen each other. And, and as a, as a working photographer, um, it's great because in different ways I've been able to, you know, make a living from it too. So, which is the important part. We've got to pay for our cameras and our rent and everything else. We can't. We can't just take pictures for the fun of it. I don't know. Some people can, but I can't. <laughs> no, that's definitely something we can't do. Most of us, anyways. Uh, so glad to see you're able to turn something like that into, you know, a actual 
uh, not only a project that is rewarding, fulfilling, but also you know, rewarding financially and keeping you afloat and whatnot. It's so hard to find work in good times. And it's even tougher to find work in the bad times. Now, uh, it's like we talk to uh, Travis and, you know, he'll sometimes bring up, oh, I got a shoot today, you know, and it's it's not like, you know, in the olden times, the before times when, you know, he'd have shoots all weekend or, you know, he would, he would talk about how he'd have, be like 48 hours straight of different shoots and how, you know, that's how busy he was. So glad to see that you are you know, getting some work out there and getting some vision for it. So that's good to hear. Right. Right. And I'm hoping what I'm what I'm hoping for is that this opens up another world of of the medical part that people see it and they you know they they sit there and go what what can I do with this or hey that's a great idea and then work work it into their advertising or work or get another nonprofit to call me up and you know I I love to travel so getting um, you know going into the um, Middle East, I went in there um, with a church group, and they were actually actually paying me to work for the nonprofit, which was great. Um, so, but there's been a lot of times when I've done it, you know, frequent fire miles and and fundraised to be able to go shoot, and it's cost you know twenty three hundred dollars to go to Asia for three weeks and come back with ten thousand images, which hopefully they will make. A lot of money off to be able to do them next so there's it's both ways you know after 55 years of photography you know yes i need to make money but i can also i i know exactly how to use that camera to help people and uh and i I always find it you know people say hey did you make any money on that on that documentary did you know and sometimes to say no but every time i pick the camera up and watch the kids smile, that was enough. I mean, these kids in absolutely horrible situations, huge clefts. And I'm sitting there as a journalist. I got more, the clothes that I have on my body are better than their entire wardrobe because they don't have a wardrobe. And I'm sitting there with a $5,000 camera and I'm going home. They're not. They're, they're, they're who knows where they're going. And they sit there and they have the biggest smile on their face. It's like, you know, I just helped them out tremendously and they helped me out tremendously. So um, and that's what happened with photographing the nurses. You know, these nurses were one nurse was sitting there and, you know, she was kind of sitting on the after the everybody left for the clapping, you know, like 15 after seven. And she's just a young girl. She's sitting there and uh, all of a sudden she drops her phone. And I and I walk over to her and I said, are you OK? And and she hardly could pick her head up and go, no, I'm exhausted. That's what that's what I was involved in. That's what I and, and that's what I had to take in. I didn't even take her picture. I couldn't. It's like uh, this is not the moment. You got to behave. Got to kind of behave yourself. I think as a journalist, sometimes you just have to walk away from some of those moments because it's the fact that I sat there and asked her if she's OK was my job. As a journalist, I feel, you know, because right. it was I connected with her and she needed that connection. Yeah, uh, it was it was 10 seconds, but at least someone just didn't ignore her and walk by, which lots of the people just walked by. So um, and especially in this day and age, you know, you got a lot of people that, um, you know, we can't have photo shoot all because of COVID, which is I understand. But there is ways of doing it 
where we can continue and work it. But everybody's got to behave themselves. Right. Well, you know, it's funny. The, it's, the, the photo shoot is probably the best job suited for something like COVID because you can be socially distanced. You can put on long lens. And you're going to use a long lens anyways, probably for the most part, if you want to get nice, shallow depth of field. So right. it fits right in. There should be no reason yeah. why you can't do a nice photo session. Now, right. let me ask you. So this was, uh, you said the nurses of Lenox Hill. That's what you described yeah. in the email. And you said that you turned this 14-week job into a 120-page book, and there already are 1,500 copies, like, out They're, there, like, printed or to be printed? No, they, they've they ordered 1,500 copies. Who's they? The, National, the New York Professional Nurses Union. Okay. Uh, so there's about 13 to 1,500 members. So the object was is to give them a piece of history. Nice. Um, you know, to sit there and charge them for it, it's kind of like, you know, not the, not the thing. But I, but I know for a fact that when these fifteen hundred uh, books go out, I'm going to get requests like crazy for more sure. books because you know, mom, dad, and uncle, and sister, and brother, and they're going to look at it and go, "Where can I get this book? Where can I get this book?" Because uh, it's not on a, it's not on one specific person. It's probably. 400 photographs out of the 15,000 that I that I did, um, but it's about uh, oh, there's probably 500 different nurses in those 400 photographs out of the 1,500 that you know you you can't. It, the biggest problem was getting the uh, a, a broad uh, amount of the of the nurses because you had all different shifts, but you also had the ER nurses that couldn't come out of the hospital. So, you know, to drag them out was really hard. So I got some of those and stuff like that uh, because they're covered in PPE that they can't get. You know, they got three masks on, and the one that's on the outside is the one that they throw away and stick another one on. But to undo undo their, their protection to come out to get a photograph and then go back in and have to redo completely and not have it, Forget about the fact, the time and the effort and the chance of being exposed. But they didn't have it. You know, there wasn't there to go trash it. And so, so it was a challenge. Uh, and you had to behave. You had to, you had to understand it. You couldn't give the nurses a hard time. Well, why, why aren't you coming out here? I got to do. The, you know, no. Hey, can you can you go in and ask so and so? Or I had two nurses that I call my production and I got to know them. You know, I knew that I was going to be there for a period of time. It wasn't like going to a protest and, and the protest is going to go for two hours and then disappear. This protest went on for 14 weeks. So as a photographer, as a journalist, I had to keep myself going. I had to keep telling the story. And, um, and as it went along, life around it went along. So they had the Floyd protests, they had the gay rights, they had the Mother's Day, uh, they had Pizza Day, they had all, all these different things that happened. The, the last two pages of the book has probably got, you know, 300 people who donated to the, to the scenario. Well, each one of those did something throughout the time for the nurses. So um, even, B&A, even B&H came and gave, I think they gave... Uh, um, you know, memory sticks or something, you know, so you know, it wasn't just the pizza guy. So, uh, you know, it was, it was, there was, there was one time I was, I was standing there. Sometimes you didn't, it's, it's six 
57 and you're standing on Lex in 77 and there's nobody there. Okay. So there's a couple of other photographers roaming around and, and like, okay, it's not going to happen today. 658, nothing. 659, all of a sudden you start seeing some, a group of nurses come out. By seven o'clock, the noise level, the, the, all of a sudden, the fire department would show up. The mounted police on their horses would show up. The uh, the the police would show up, and the sirens would go off. And the noise level was amplified. You think New York is noisy? Just absolutely amplified. Probably 200 nurses, everything going on. And then it's you know what's the New York minute? 710, empty street. And this this went on every night. So so. I'm sitting there and the the nurses are getting less and less because it's getting better, which was fantastic. And I've got my a little studio set up where I'm going as I'm photographing. So I got to photograph the scenario. I'm pulling nurses out of the come over to my studio, come over to my studio. So it was it was a, a, a good exercise for 15 minutes a night. So no, that's great. great. Are they still doing that? No, it that stopped about um, about two months ago. Okay, because people are more are more able to move freely about. Yes, and also um, the indicator you in, in behind Lenox Hill, seventy uh, seventh, and then Lenox Hill Greenwich Village was the other where the nurses are, and I did a whole <clears throat> a whole series down there. All of a sudden, you see a tractor trailer, huge, you know, the big tractor trailer. Um, be put in there and it's a air con it's a uh, refrigerated one and they needed it for them to extend the morgue and they for anybody who's who's listening to technical things 40 caskets fit on the floor of a tractor trailer trailer they filled that up probably in the first day then they went oh shit what are we going to do so they put bunk beds in the trailer that's how sick this was yeah that wasn't enough so they brought in another tractor trailer and stuck it on the other end. So um, as things went on, you watched the tra- that's what the indicator was. And all of a sudden, one of the trailers left and then another trailer left. And you knew that things were getting better. Yeah. So if those things show back up again, you know that the shit is hitting. The- right. Yeah, I think there was one one hospital that had seven of them in the wow. parking lot. Seven tractor trailer trucks. Right. That is that's horrible. Um, there was. Unfortunately, and, and some of the sick things that unfortunately happened is Downton. There was a funeral home out in, I think, Queens, and they had two U-Haul trucks. And there was a smell, and people saw some stuff leaking. Oh, well, geez. they didn't have enough room, so they stuck them in the trucks. No refrigeration. It was just, you know, not no. they're not enough. Amazing, not enough funeral directors. Right. Because you can't just take somebody and dump them in the ocean, or you can't take and just dig a hole and stick them in the ground. Sure you, know, you can. You don't... Weren't they doing that well, on that can. island? Uh, they were doing, I don't know what island it was, but that was the big story, right? They were digging mass graves for all the unclaimed bodies and burying them. And... Yeah, but that's been that's been there for almost a century. That's called Potter's Field. Yeah, but it's still it was still happening. Oh, it's going to happen for the re- That's where all the Do- John Does go. Right. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. But... You can bury them in the ground. You can bury them in a mass grave. Yeah, but if you have five, six, seven, a thousand bodies, you can't do it tomorrow. <laughs> you got to put them somewhere while you're waiting. Right. Um, but each one of those bodies, DNA, 
as much identification, photograph, you, all the fingerprints, everything, because when they put them in a potter's field, they know exactly where everybody is. They don't know who they are. All of a sudden, they find out that John Doe is Frank Smith. They go to Potter's Field and get Frank Smith out of Potter's Field and go put give him to the relatives, and they go bury him somewhere else. Okay. So it take it's a process. It's a, <laughs> Indeed. Know. And on but that then, note, <laughs> yeah. let's talk about in, let's talk about nicer things, shall we? Yeah. And let's get into some of the news of the week. Definitely. Uh, First story I wanted to talk to you about was about Photoshop. Of course, they unveiled some new AI features with their latest edition of the software. I don't have the software for my own personal use, so I haven't been able to really test out this new AI stuff. But from what I've seen of the folks who have it and have used it and shown their experiences on YouTube, basically it it provides... uh, New dynamic and dramatic manipulation of the face it includes the ability to change the direction the face is looking, the direction the eyes are looking, the age of the subject, their happiness, their angry, uh, all these different kind of, you know, interesting things you can do with a, a portrait. And this is primarily for portraits. You know, that's what these uh, these new features are primarily for. And, you know, I want to throw it over to you, Bruce, and kind of get your thoughts on this. You know, what do you think of these new capabilities of this software? Do you think this is going to be something scary? Do you think, you know, we're going to see a lot of manipulation being going on with people's faces that we haven't seen already? Well, you know, as they say, history repeats itself. If you if you go to Mount Rushmore and you look at the four presidents up there, George Washington is looking the other direction from the other three. And the reason he's looking the other direction is because when they made him a crack developed down his forehead. Oh, really? And they redid it. Really? So wow. So they, re- they shifted. When they redid it, they had a, you know, it was a solid rock, so they had to do it, so they did it over again. So to wow. me, <laughs> that's kind of the first Photoshop. Um, they could do whatever they wanted to, you know? Um, and very few people know about that. But why is George Washington looking the other way? Um, so I, I think that... Um, I'm from the world of film, you know, I've been shooting film since 1964. And when we shot film, as I'm, I'm, I'm sure you know exactly from your film days, we had to have it right in the camera on that piece of film because to do Photoshop or retouching was a bloody fortune to, you know, even to change the color of the, of the slide. So I probably would be very... Unless I really, really needed to use it, I probably wouldn't use it because I don't like manipulating my images. I like getting them right in the camera. Um, and I think it's dangerous. I think it's like, really? Um, I don't, I don't think that's photography. I think that's, I think that's, uh, manipulation of, of a, of a piece of art, a piece of photography after the fact. So it, uh, it's an after effect, not not photography. Uh, it's kind of like CGI, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was looking at the videos that were featured, you know, showing off the capabilities, and it's really remarkable just how seamless it all is. Looking at what uh, people could do with the imagery, and very little skill is required in terms of having to actually do it. You just 
you know, change different sliders. And even after it's done, you can tweak the final product. So if it's, you know, some of the examples I saw, it wasn't perfect around like the edges of their face, but you can go in there and you can tweak it and refine it and fix those little minor errors. And it really makes that kind of manipulation so much easier. And, you know, I don't think like I wouldn't even know how to do the kind of things that this software is doing, you know, the way it's able to actually, you know, you, you have a photograph of somebody looking at you straight on and it seamlessly makes them look like they're turning their head or turning their eyes. That was probably the creepiest one in terms of it's just raw power is that, you know, someone's gaze would be off to the left or off to the right and you could actually straighten their gaze to look straight at the camera. I think if you're doing this for portraiture, you know, you're doing this for something like headshots, something where it's obviously a staged photo, you know, in a studio or whatnot, or you're doing headshots for a client, this could be a really great tool for fixing yeah. just little minor things. You know, if you're trying to make your your subject look a little bit younger, or if their head is maybe slightly tilted off or slightly off axis, and you want them more straight on, it could really make that whole workflow so much faster, so much easier and not having to need to do a reshoot. Yeah. So in that regard, I think it's it's pretty cool and glad to see this kind of innovation in the field. But, you know, I also wonder if people are going to continue to doubt and underestimate and perhaps question legitimacy of the work that we do, where we're always about honesty with regard to what we're doing because we're visual journalists. Do you fear that, you know, this and other sort of, you know, photo manipulation software, and you can talk a little bit about, you know, when Photoshop was introduced and, and whatnot and how it sort of shaped your career and the career uh, of all you, all the photojournalists moving forward. Was there sort of a, how do you say, a Pandora's box that opened with the introduction of Photoshop and other sort of software that made your job as a visual journalist that much harder? Just trying to convince people what you shot was authentic. Well, in in the um, I think it was ninety ninety three. I got an email from somebody because I was doing a lot of stock photography through the uh, this. I think if this was around when stock photography was big, boy, it would be we would be in huge trouble. I mean, the the stuff that would have been manipulated and everything else would have made stock photography it would probably have killed stock photography. Because you, you could do it, you could have ten variations of the same person and only have take one picture. So that would have killed the business. Um, they wanted me to do. They wanted to buy stock photography of of community. That was the that was the assignment. Community and um, the because the the furniture that they were advertising was contra, which meant community. And if it wasn't for Photoshop being able to scan my slides. And be able to send them over by email. Then I flooded them with email photographs to get the job. I wouldn't have been able to do that. You know, to, to put it in the FedEx and send it in someone going up and looking. It wouldn't have worked. Because I convinced them to send me to Italy for five days to shoot. Uh, because there wasn't what they wanted in stock. So, yes, Photoshop way back when helped me get a really great, fantastic job. Um, and it was a documentary type, so a very journalistic way of, of shooting for this company. Today, not only are we going to go, it's to me, I was thinking about this earlier. When you shoot up, when people shoot these protests, a lot of times they don't tell you the story of the protest. 
a lot of times there's that one photograph of the guy with the with the you know the Malta cocktail just about to throw it and the darkness behind and the fire going off. Well, if they can start manipulating the face, why can't they take two people in there with you know with them and three people and make it make it so unreal so unreal that someone at the at the process go there was nobody here throwing co- throwing Molotov cocktails what are you talking about um or people will go wow that's a horrible place i don't want to go there look what's happening and that i think is a huge danger you know if you go so, sometimes i've gone places to to document and i have had to work my butt off for a week to get the photographs to tell the story because it wasn't there. <laughs> now, if I can just put it there, well, I can solve the problem. Okay, well, yeah, stick this person here, stick that one there, make this make this kid cry instead of smile. Will that raise more money? Yeah, no. we've seen something like that in you know Fox News, right? They were doing stories about the protests in Seattle and Portland and whatnot. And they were basically using imagery of events and people that weren't there to as the headline grabber and sort of the lead in picture for the story. And it was almost pretty much manipulated media at that point, because you're essentially representing something that wasn't actually true at the event, but that's Fox news. So you really can't believe much of what they produce anyways. One of them, they, they put this, this, these protests and I mean, there's, things being burnt and thrown right it was in it was in spain yeah yeah different different country altogether (laughs) and it was was supposed to be new york and it's like wait a second i know that building isn't in new york (laughs) yep it's in spanish harlem what are you talking about oh right right yeah i would say the difficulty or the sort of you know what, what happens with your job or the way that these ability and capabilities like Photoshop sort of mess with your job is when the average or sort of the the layman, the uninformed, learn about these capabilities, you know, and don't know what it is you do as a photojournalist. And that manipulation isn't something you can do. And so you might have a client who says, oh, do this or that and the other thing and make my bags go away from under my eyes or you remove these blemishes or how about, you know, apply some blur here of course, you have to tell them that, you know, as a photojournalist, that's not what you do. That's not ethical. That's not something you can do. And people don't understand that. You know, they just want the perfect image. Why can't you just remove the power lines from the back of this shot? Can you just make this shot perfect? I mean, what was the big deal? I want a perfect shot. Right. And so it's it's a it, imperative upon us as, you know, photojournalists and people with ethics and whatnot to continue to educate to continue to let people know, like, okay, this is what we can do. This is what we can't do. Yes, I know this fantastic new tool will make you look 20 years younger and will remove your wrinkles and will fix your smile and fix your teeth, but I can't do that for you. So, And you're, all, and you're also going to walk into a room and they're going to look at you and go, wait a second, that's not your picture. <laughs> you know what? Going back to the stock photo thing you mentioned earlier, one of the videos I saw that talked about this new software highlighted the fact that you can take any old stock photo and create dozens of different variations on it just by changing the sliders. You could have a young person, have an old person, you know, change their face. So it really expands the capabilities of one single stock photo. So it could kill the stock photo industry. Who knows? Yeah, but what what happens, what, you know, um, Andy Warhol did a book on, uh, of, you know, photographs that, 
that uh, paparazzis and journalists had taken of all these different um, celebrities. He slightly cropped them, and he won in court. And the book was very successful because it was of all these incredible people. He kind of stole everybody's photographs, but because he cropped them, he made it his own art. So when I was doing stock photography, I had 45,000 images in the library of everything. Not all 45,000 are are um, copyrighted. Well, they were copyrighted by the stock agent, but I didn't, I mean, they were registered by the stock agent, but I didn't have it myself. So why can't they just go back and take the pictures of the girls on the beach that I photographed for Modern Bride magazine and manipulate them? And then what can I do about it? They've taken my art and created it into their art. So in actuality, they don't even have to go to the beach. They can just take the picture. This is basically open season on stealing. Well, I mean, isn't that the point of stock photos? Like, I want a photograph of women on the beach. I don't I don't have a beach near me or women that I have the rights to shoot whatever we use for my ad campaign. Isn't that the point of a stock photo that I can use your image and use it however I want? I you know, royalty free yeah, or pay the royalty no, depending on the no, the type of stock you, agency I'm I'm getting the image from. Yeah, but you're paying for it. Sure. Either I'm giving it to his but you're paying for it. I'm talking about the photographers that take my beach shot, manipulate it, and then make it their own and start selling it. On a darn stock agency or how? No, just maybe it's on the internet or they, you know, a lot of the stuff is, you know, catalogs on the internet. They can pull it off and, and, and then manipulate it. Well, if they manipulate it to a certain point, it becomes theirs in the court system. Right. So therefore, if they can get a hold of my images, they can do whatever the hell they want with them. And I lose the I lose the rights to them because they've manipulated. You do a collage picture; it's now your art. It's not even though it's my photograph; it's your art. Yeah. A, there's spend a lot of money trying to fight these. Well, you know, I'd say there's still a, a lot of leverage that you can take against someone who uses your imagery without your permission. You know, copyright is still a thing in this country, thankfully. And I'm th- reminded of the the Hope poster with Barack Obama that was taken from a photograph of an AP photographer, and the AP photographer fought that case and won against the artist for him using his photograph without his permission. So, you know, there are cases that win, and if someone is just taking your imagery and using it carte blanche, you know, you have rights, and I would say to go after those people in one form or another, take them to court, hire a copyright lawyer, you know, don't hesitate to, you know, fight them in the system. Well, what I what I say to that, though, is before you even think of doing it, if you don't register your copyright, take the copyright is when you push the button. Registering the copyright is going to allow you right. to have the lawyer work with you. They will not work with you because they know the photographer is not going to be able to afford to go up against four magazines. Unless, but if it's well, copyright so a big payout. and register. Well, no, even that. If there's, <clears throat> If you register it, then Forbes has to pay your legal fee and the penalty. Right. If it's not registered, you're it's like the Wild West. Well, they'll pay you. It's it's basically a difference between I think two hundred fifty thousand dollars per infringement for registered copyrighted work, and if it's not registered, then it's basically what it would cost to produce that image. So it yeah, you know the yeah. difference. Uh, it's it's astounding. You know, it could be the difference yeah. of thousands upon thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but. Anyways, let's go ahead and move on to our next topic today. 
We're talking about the Pocket 2. This is the latest gimbal camera that has been released by DJI, and it's the sequel to their Pocket 1, their mini gimbal camera. The camera improves on its predecessor in many ways and makes a gimbal camera easily accessible and pocketable. I saw this you know, last time when it came out, and it looked intriguing, but I wasn't really interested in getting it. You know, Of course, the gas kicked in, and I really wanted to get it, but I, I kind of looked at my camera setup, my camera lineup, and I had action cameras. I've got the DJI Osmo Action, and it gets the job done. It has great stabilization, so I never saw the need for the Pocket 1. Uh, the Pocket 2, you know, again, people are giving it rave reviews. It's, it's pretty nice. I think it provides you with, you know, more of those gimbal-type creativity and creative shots that you can only do with a gimbal. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't intrigue me. I'm not interested in adding it to my kit. Uh, what are your thoughts on this camera, Bruce? Is this something you think you might uh, include in your accessory kit? It's pretty small. Yeah, and it, this is... Um... I actually just got a gimbal myself, but I got it just for the um, just for the iPhone, which okay. attach is it, uh, which you attach the iPhone to it, right? Um, because I do some real estate here in New York, and and holding your can your hand still, I'm I'm pretty good, but you know you bump into the wall because you didn't see the wall, and it messes up your whole video, right? Um, it's a whole nother learning curve. It's you know it's one more thing. Um, if I had the need for it, I'd probably look into it and say, Hey, this is a good idea. Uh, cause again, they can get pretty expensive. Actually, the, you could spend 130 on a iPhone, but you can spend 2000 on, a, on one that's going to hold that, you know, that 35 millimeter camera. Right. Um, so it, that cost is nowadays I look at my, just like you said, I look at my gear and I go, do I really need to add another piece to to this mix uh-huh. yeah this new gimbal costs i think around 450 dollars or 400 dollars, something around there maybe 350 i don't know exactly it's around that ballpark uh there's multiple versions of it there's the you know the base version and then there's like the creator version so i think they range from like 350 to 450 depending on which version you get but you know you bring up a good point right it's like you can go out and get a, a gimbal for your phone for like a hundred bucks that DJI also makes. And you just stick your phone in there and you're getting the same basic capabilities, but you're not having to have a whole separate, you know, tool with a separate memory card and a separate system that you have to learn and download. It's all kind of, you're already got the gimbal. Like I actually own two of the phone gimbals. I barely use them. because, <laughs> like I said, I barely use them too. Yeah, yeah. I've also got a regular gimbal. I've got the Ronin S for my, you know, my D, my, uh, my Canon R5, I barely use that as well, although that's a pain in the butt to use because it's extremely heavy. Um, I could see this as being something as an alternative to that. But again, with with image stabilization that I have already inside of the, the Canon R5, along with like electronic stabilization, it's really almost like having your own gimbal right there. So unless you're doing specific type of shots, like you want to get a specific perhaps overhead drone-like view, or you're trying to get a specific type of panning shot, you know, there there aren't a ton of use cases for this. If I, if I didn't already own, like, the Ronin-S and the phone ones, I could definitely see the opportunity there where it would, you know, fill a need. But getting it outright for my needs, I just can't see that. I don't need that kind of, excuse me, I don't need that kind of capability. I think they they really, they um going after the podcasters and the 
and the people who are uh, streaming and you know that type of stuff. I mean, would you would you walk into a protest and you got your bag and you got your couple bodies and lenses and uh, and pull out the gimbal in the middle of it to you know what what are you gonna? I I look at it the the protest is for X amount of time. I need to be on one way or the other. Either I'm going to shoot video or I'm going to shoot gimbal. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, right. I, I think that's going to be one of the tough things today. I think the the camera companies are making all this stuff and adding to it and adding to it and adding to it. I think that I, I kind of look, step back and go, hey, I've got, I still have my M6 that I bought in 1991. And it's a fantastic camera. I shoot film through it, and I have a wonderful time, and I create my my fine art with it, and it's absolutely perfect. There's no need to me. There's no need to get another camera. Um, so adding something to my gear, I'm gonna have to have either a client or a really good project to to, and it's weight too. You know, even even if it's a pound, stick of an extra pound in your camera bag, or or in your pocket. More, you know that type of thing. Uh, there's a lot of thought you have to put into it, and I and I think a lot of people say, "Hey, that's a neat thing," and do just like we did. We we say we both have the ones for the iPhone. It's sitting over there on my table. I I, I thought it was a great idea. I could tell. I could show you some other cameras that are sitting over there too. That you know. Hmm. Yeah. So, no, I I don't yeah. find a need for it. I just shoot with what I have and. You know, if I'm going to a protest or something, then my intent is to keep my camera gear as lightweight and also as, how do I say, low technologically as possible in the sense that if I come out there with a gimbal or something that has moving parts, it's going to get broken. You know, I got to be ready to move, usually camera, lens, maybe a shotgun mic, and that's about it. You know, and I'm getting what I can get with that. I might bring a few extra lenses and that's about it. You know, you don't want too many extra little things hanging off your camera, hanging off your body that can break off or get destroyed because that's just going to be, you know, more things you have to file for insurance claims for. I mean, even bringing a camera out there, like if I were back in the States right now, I don't know if I would bring my Canon R5 out to a protest because it's it's probably more camera than the situation warrants. And being so new and so expensive, I'd probably go with something that is maybe a bit more disposable in that regard so you know maybe pull out my gh4 or my gh5 or something like that and shoot with that i don't know if i'd shoot with the the big mama jamma but you know well actually actually i've never i've never thought about it that way i i just shot a protest uh yesterday um and the only camera i had with me was my um m6 Right. And and you can you can tell when you're getting to the end of the roll of film. So I'm in the midst of it. Sure. And all of a sudden I'm running out of film. Right. So I have to step off to the side, change and step back in. But it was all the camera I needed. And I and it's a small little camera. And and people didn't didn't react any any way different. They figured I was a photographer. Pay it, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Don't don't go throwing shit at them. Just (laughs) do what you do. Um, but yeah. I've gone, I've gone to the other part of the world with, you know, camera bag worth thirty thousand dollars, and the last thing I've thought about is, you know, pulling out that camera, because um, I have insurance. Yeah, there you go. So That's... that that allows me to lose the cam. If I'm going to lose the camera, the only thing I want 
is the film or the or the car you know that if you're gonna if you're gonna do just you know i'll sneak the card out stick it in my here's the camera I'm like that's gonna save my life stick it in right. my pocket take the camera but leave wanna, the film leave, yeah just leave the film there was a journalist who's sitting in a in a car and um and they they approached the car and they came out to the window and they and they uh told her to um that they wanted her camera and everything else and in I don't know how she did it, but she was ac- actually able to convince them to give the camera back to her for a moment, and that's all she needed to pull the card, and then she gave the camera back. She made I can't remember what the excuse was, but the thing she was worried the most about was the card. Yeah, and, that's all that matters, she, really. All that matters, and she convinced them somehow. She convinced them to give them the camera back, and boom, out, out came the card, and that was it. She probably was like, hey, let me change the settings for you. Put yeah, on auto yeah. for you. Well, I yeah. was I was in I was in um, in Istanbul, and I wanted to go to different places, and and of course this guy said this is a great, but don't go there. And I go okay, of course I went there, and I'm walking down the street, and I photographed these kids in the reflection. Well, I didn't realize it, but I was photographing a men's club, like a like a mafioso men's club, and uh, all of a sudden this guy comes out and grabs onto my left arm ask me what am i doing and of course i'm walking faster and faster another guy comes out on the other side and so here's bruce walking down and i the only thing i could think of luckily i was shooting with my digital camera is to take it and delete the pictures in front of them which you can then put the card in your pocket and recover it except for the sony if you shoot sony and you delete the pictures in the sony camera they're gone Wow. You cannot recover from a Sony camera. Interesting. Very, very important. I, I shot a whole, jo- I shot ten apartments one day. Came back and accidentally deleted the, oh, no. reformatted the card. I had to oh, go back no. out and shoot. Jeez. And I did everything. I went and then I got on the phone with uh, whoever, and they said, "Nope, Sony turns it into zeros." Wow. On the first one. Wow. So if you have a Sony. Oh my god! Don't oh, delete in the camera. <laughs> the only the one time Travis isn't here to defend Sony. Oh yeah, I'm sure he'd have a lot to say about but that. No, one. that's not true. It is true. I know, right? Well, <laughs> I wish it was. You bring up an interesting point, and it leads us right into our last story. In an opinion piece published for the New York Daily News, a woman by the name of Jean Sun claims that you know people photographing women on the street without their consent is somehow uh, a act of performing a gender-based violence on them. That's per her opinion article. And she's actually working with councilmen within New York City to restrict such such acts. Um, I think we can all agree, you know, for the most part as visual journalists, that if you're out in public and you're in the public view and visible by, you know, public, whether it's inside of a building, from a window, or out on the street, you know, you're pretty much fair game to be photographed. But of course... You know, we've talked about consent. We've talked about the rights of the people you're photographing. And, you know, generally speaking, if it's something where you can get consent, if you can work with them, you know, in one way or another and sort of get that buy-in from them, especially in this world of protests and whatnot being so uh, extremely rampant, then something we try to do. But, you know, as someone who shoots in New York City and, you know, someone, as you said, you've been told to delete your photographs. And that's one of the things that's mentioned in the story is that this woman has apparently been able to get photographers who are photographing her, she's been able to get the police to have them delete their photos. 
And I was going to ask you, when you were shooting these protests with your film camera, did anyone go up to you and be like, don't take my photo, delete that photo, and then you go and respond to them, uh, it's film, I can't delete it. But what are your thoughts um, on this one, um, Bruce? Okay, so there's, so there's, so there's one, I'm not going to, I'm not going to um, isolate them. But there's one journalist who's a right is who is writing. I figure a writer, a writer is is got a problem with women being photographed, and that's a bad bad thing. What about the men that are being photographed? What about the transgender that are being photographed? What about the kids that are being? Do they not all count in the same thing? Why is it just women? I mean, there's men that are photographed. That, well, because the opinion writer know, is a woman, and she's concerned about just her, you know, herself and women in general. From what I get okay. from this opinion piece, I w- the only time that I, well, I actually wasn't told to uh, in Istanbul. I was not told to delete it. I deleted it to save my life because I couldn't figure out how to get out of this, how to get out of the situation. It was either I did something, which was I came up with the idea to delete. Once I deleted it, the hands came off my arms and I ditched. If I couldn't have, I probably would have gotten the crap kicked out of me. They didn't care about the photograph. They cared about the fact that I was photographing and what was I going to do with it. Right. Um, I was in New York photographing a protest. Uh, It wasn't a pro. Well, it was a protest, but they were trying to get the Pakistanis were trying to say, hey, this is not good. And I'm photographing the woman says, what are you what are you taking pictures for? And I looked at her and I said, you're having a protest. You want people to know about what's going on. How are we going to do it if we don't take pictures and put it out? So I wasn't I was nothing against the woman happened to be a bunch of men around her. She happened to be one of the 10 women in the thing. So how do you determine how do you determine? So every single woman, no matter where she is, no matter what she's doing, we're not allowed to take her picture. I think that's what uh, the opinion writer would like. Yes, or you need okay, their consent. Okay, okay, so the the group of uh, protesters, which happens all the time in New York, coming down Park Avenue, and right in the front are three women, and they're yelling, they're screaming. If I'm taking the picture, I'm taking a picture of the protest. I'm not. Yes, I might zero in on one woman or one man, but do I not? Am I not? Am I going to be not allowed to take the picture of the protest because there's women in it? But the women are in it to protest, to get their their voice heard and get their image seen. Now, how do you determine what you can take a picture of? But on the other on the other hand, I can see that if there are laws, though, if I take a picture of a woman and <clears throat> and I put it on a billboard for the sex club down the street, that woman can sue the crap out of me. So as a professional, I know what I can do with the photograph. I'm not going to I, – I know that I'm not going to use her commercially or I'm not going to trash her. I'm not going to do anything bad to her. I think the people that she should be after are the ones that rip off that person's image or use it improperly or make them look at this horrible woman doing this wonderful – she's doing a wonderful thing, but they can make it – now with now with Photoshop, they can make her cry instead of smile. That really going to screw them up. But I that's – that – that's a police state and now and those police have no right to make me delete the photograph right and that was one of the things i was most surprised about is that you know the police were telling photographers to delete their shots and you know what the opinion writer here says about 
what she's trying to stop or what she has an issue with is not necessarily the person who's putting themselves out there, right? The protester, but, you know, the sort of sneaky shots from a long distance with a long lens or even close-up shots of someone just going about their day, minding their business, walking down the street, and a photographer, you know, comes up to them or takes photographs of them that, you know, from her point of view, this person is doing it to have, you know, shots of this woman later that they're going to do things with, you know, for their own personal benefit or personal satisfaction. And she sees that as being something that's violating her rights as a woman, you know, that the that someone is could potentially be using her image to satisfy themselves in some way. And the one aspect that she mentions here is, you know, of course, there's a felony if you do upskirt photos, right? If you try and get a photograph, you know, from a low angle up a woman's skirt, that's a felony. But she thinks it doesn't go far enough, and she wants laws and whatnot to restrict all aspects of photographing a woman without their consent in, I guess, a uh, in, in an event that they're not putting themselves out there to be photographed. But, yeah, anything like this would get struck down immediately by, you know, the First Amendment. None of these kind of laws or rules or whatnot uh, could potentially stand up, I think, in court uh, because of the First Amendment and just the fact that if you're out in public, you kind of have no rights of privacy or no rights to your own uh, image. But, you know, it is it is an interesting subject to bring up and obviously something we should be cognizant of that some people feel that way. And, and maybe, you know, as sort of a photojournalist doing our job, you know, and we wonder why people might be offended by us taking their photograph, even if they're out there and they're protesting and putting themselves out there. It is just something to keep in mind you know, in terms of understanding how people are feeling. Yeah, but as as a as a professional of the years that I've done and the hundreds thousands and thousands of people have taken pictures, even <coughs> excuse me, even in, in a place like Bangladesh, there's a a, a woman um, sitting there with her child in the recovery room. And um in in Bangladesh it's proper for a woman to cover her head. Well, I made the mistake of walking into that room, and you should have seen the look that I got and the people scrambling to do. And I learned the next time I went in there, I literally, they everybody could see the door. I actually walked up to the door, and I all you saw was my camera in the door going like this. And you heard the rumbling going on, and then I walked in. I could take any picture I wanted because they, they don't always wear their head pieces when, you know, they... They wear the headpieces when other men are around. Right. So that was that was my way of acknowledging them and getting permission um, to 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 come in. Right. Um, and and actually, them with their headset was a better picture because it identified them as Bengalis right. in Bangladesh with their children. So sure. without it, kind of screwed up my photograph. Anyways, it wasn't true documentation. Right. My biggest problem with this is that this woman get gets a loud loud scream out there and 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 gets a lot of news and stuff so the next time you go to a protest and you're taking a picture of a woman with a great sign screaming and yelling and the woman says you can't take my picture and you go why can't i take your picture well because they said that you can't like like because she's saying it it's now law instead of it's not law it's just her opinion Nobody's put it into the all. Nobody's taken down the First Amendment. But because of social media and everything else, she's so loud that now, what, we're going to go in a protest and all the women are going to say, no, you can't take my picture? 
I, I, I don't. I, I think, I think you're giving this person in their opinion article a bit too much uh, weight and credit um, in terms of its uh, overall merit and ability to actually change anything. But you know, again, you might you know again pull that out as sentiment, right? You know, people might have that sentiment in terms of why they won't or don't want their photograph taken. But you know, again, it always comes down to having to educate having to educate the person you're photographing, just like when we talked about Photoshop and having to educate people on what's ethical and what's not ethical. It's just about having to educate the people you're photographing. And, you know, from our discussions, you know, with Evelyn and, you know, other folks who have shot protests and stuff, you can argue with them till you're blue in the face about the merits of what you're doing and how you're act, you know, doing your First Amendment. They don't care. They don't care. They just don't want their photograph taken because, you know, they they see that as something that can potentially be used against them when in reality, you know, it's only if they're breaking the law, looting, you know, causing anarchy and whatnot. That's that's where they're going to potentially, if anything, see any trouble. Just acting and pursuing your First Amendment right and protesting. You have the right to protest, thankfully, in this country. So trying to make them realize that is, you know, it's an uphill battle. Especially now, more and more, as you know, the internet makes the sharing and whatnot, and you know, of, of imagery so easy and so prevalent. And yeah, it's just a kind of a mindset people have that they don't want their image out there. But you know, it's kind of like, why are you out at a that, protest? Yeah, you know? you're right. Yeah, you're on my street. You yeah, walk exactly. down my street that I paid for. Um, one of the one of the things um, when I was photographing, and I literally would set up a, a studio right on the street. And I'm photographing it and I've invited the woman into my studio. So we've had permission, you know, she's she doesn't get into my studio unless she wants to. I don't say there wasn't any list that I had. I was, hey, would you come take your. Oh, yeah, I will do it. And other people, no, I don't want to. Oh, okay, next. I never pushed anybody. Yeah. So I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there photographing and. In the as you take a picture with the digital, you can see the person standing behind you because in the reflection, I got three to four photographers standing behind me back in COVID. They're two feet away from me. There, some of them are almost on my back. So first of all, it's COVID problem, but they're shooting over my shoulders. None of those people had the permission or the right to do that, but they did it anyways. And they, most of them were young photographers. So. I think it's I think it's professionalism. I wouldn't do that to another photographer. It's professional. He's got to if if they're all just yelling and screaming coming down the street. Yeah, get your position. But if there's you're standing on the street and you're isolated, the person and you're taking the picture, I must have had permission. And uh, uh, and why are you photographing over my shoulder? That's when I think it is not right. You know, that that's that's. And it's not women or men because they're photographing women and men, children, everything. They did it anyway. Yeah, um, indeed. And that kind of just gets me angry when I see these stories that are all about, oh, we should blur people's faces at at protests. I'm like, no, no, don't do that. Don't ever do that. Um, no. If you're in Bangladesh and you're trying to protect a certain class of people who will be killed <laughs> because their photograph is taken or as we've seen in other folks who've talked about this subject – Okay, maybe there's merit there, but in the states, doing legally protected, constitutionally protected acting of your free rights protest, no, don't don't ever well, blur those images. Well, it was like the Syrian camps. I couldn't go into that because someone said if you go in there and start photographing your Western journalist, you're going to get stoned. And I go, 
okay, I won't go in. We had to hire uh, Jordan. You're like, stoned? Um, That sounds like fun. Sign me up for that. I want to get stoned. Sure. (laughs) Oh, wait, you mean they'll throw stones at me? Oh, (laughs) Uh, maybe not. Anyways. I don't want to hurt the ca- I don't want to hurt the camera, you know. Indeed, exactly. All right, Bruce. Well, I think that's going to bring us to the end of this week's show. Thank you so much for taking time out to be with us. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, Bruce Byers Photography and Ed's B as in boy Y E R S Bruce Byers Photography. And you can go check out the book and buy the book, The Nurses uh, Project. And um, I'm here for. I'll travel the world once this COVID thing, this COVID thing is killing us. <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming as, as, you probably had to cancel some trips because of COVID, right? Oh, yeah. I was supposed to be in Bangladesh. Um, not not Bangladesh. supposed to be in um, Nepal and Bhutan because I have my travel business, which is CameraOdysseys.com. Right. We are trying to get into Cuba for the uh, tobacco Cuba. season in February. Okay. So we're hoping that everything will go good. Yeah. Um, so if you want to come on the trip, go to cameraodysseys.com and get on our newsletter and sign up for the trip. Um, no obligation until COVID allows us to do it. But I'm going the moment moment they're open. I'm going. Cool. Because got to travel. Yeah. Got to travel. Yeah. Hopefully we can all get back to travel. That would yeah. be nice. I'll yeah. be traveling in June of next year, no matter what. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Following you. What's that? With a con- with a container of of furniture following you indeed indeed well probably it'll get there before i do more than likely yeah uh anyways if you'd like to support our show please go to aroundthelens.com there you'll find links to all of our social media as well as our patreon where you can uh, donate to the show and support us financially and get everything we do ahead of time you can find that link at patreon.com slash around the lens and you can find links to everything we talked about including the links to the um projects that Bruce mentioned at AroundTheLens.com, and you can find our show notes there. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, Bruce, for taking time out to be on the show. Truly appreciate it. Sounds, sounds good. And, I'll, and I'll, do the, I'll do the rum next time, no matter what the time is. Heck yeah, that's right. It's at 5 o'clock somewhere, right? Right. All right. Well, that's about it for this week's show. I'm David J. Murphy for Bruce Byers. Thank you all for listening or watching Around the Lens, episode 248, and we are out. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Around the Lens. We hope you enjoyed the show. To continue the conversation, head on over to one of our social media outlets, such as Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or Twitter. To support the show financially, consider donating to us via Patreon. For show notes from this week's episode and links to everything else we talked about, just go to our website, AroundTheLens.com. Finally, if you or someone you know might be a good guest for the show, get in touch with us via email at info at AroundTheLens.com.